Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From the mountains to the coast to the forest, Georgia is a beautiful place for spending time outdoors. GPB journalists are celebrating that splendor with Wild Georgia, a series of in-depth reports airing this month during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Ross Terrell and Emily Jones are among those working on the series. Ross is here in Atlanta, and Emily is on the line from Savannah. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hey, Virginia. Hey. So, Ross, I'm going to start with you because you kicked off the series Wild Georgia with Atlanta's tree canopy. You headed five miles from downtown to Lionel Hampton Beecher Hills Park. This is a very special forest that urban areas just don't have. Some of the trees have been cut, um, but a lot of the trees in here are probably 100 years old. Some of them are older. That's Catherine Kolb with Eco Addendum. Her group leads nature walks and tours around the metro area. You know, when we see these plants in the ecosystem, that means our soils are intact. And that's a very special thing. So, Russ, your guide says the forest is special for an urban area. What makes it so special? Yeah, well, a number of things. Uh, first, being this close to a major city and having uh, a dense forest. Um, there are also trees that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old that we were standing around. Um, and a lot of native species. Um, there was some green on this day we went a, a few weeks ago, but that was invasive species. But there are a lot of trees that I was touching and looking at that, you know, hundreds of years ago, those same people were looking at those same trees. Mm, No hugging? No hugging of the trees? I did not hug the trees. Pollen was bad that day. Well, you reported very beautifully on it, but this is the thing. How rare is it for residents of an urban area like Atlanta to be able to hike near their homes like you did there? Right. So you're talking the city of Atlanta of about uh, 500,000 people. Uh, The metro area is much larger. Um, And... 47% of the area is tree canopy. That is almost 50%. Almost 50%. The city's goal is to get it to 50%, but we'll get to that. Um, But that's more than any other large city in the country. Um, So to be able to go in your backyard or to be able to go to a park, um, that's something that is, I mean, it's rare and, and it's special, which I didn't know this at first. And I was in the forest. I'm like, all these trees are bare. We're crunching on dead leaves. What's so great about it? But when you take somebody like Catherine that's such a trained eye who could point out, look, this little three-leaf plant that's coming up from the ground, don't step on that because mm-hmm. that's native and that's special. Your guide also mentioned that the soil was intact. What does that mean and why does that matter? Right. So this isn't to say none of the trees in the canopy get cut down, but it's when they get cut down, the soil is not being dug up. It's not being replaced. Um, so you are able to regenerate with the original trees and species that were there. Uh, so in this case, uh, there was a plant she pointed out called Catesby's Trillium. There was a little southern, uh, I think she called it a papasil. You might have to fact check me on that. Um, but it goes back to the, the nature of Atlanta. It's very hilly. And farmers weren't able to dig in their roots and farm and plow the land because of that, meaning kind of by accident or 
by a stroke of luck, Atlanta was able to maintain the soil that generated the forest when we were settled back in the 1800s. Which is a rare thing. But residents do love these beautiful big trees. That's part of the appeal of Atlanta. But they also often cut them down. And this isn't not just developers, but homeowners. How, how is that bigger is better changing the, the landscape? Yeah, it's really a catch-22. I talked with uh, Trees Atlanta, uh, Greg Levine, and he pointed out a lot of times it's the same lot, but it's a smaller house being torn down for a large one. Mm-hmm. So we're not even talking adding people. And his point was, we're not increasing density, we're just increasing mass. Um, And you also look at people not knowing what trees are in their yard. Uh, There's often the idea, if it's storms are coming, the tree may look dead, so let's take it down. Uh, Over in Decatur, they're kind of having the same fight of a tree being, they don't know whose property it's on, so somebody's like, eh, I don't want it, they cut it down. Um, And so you see these metro cities kind of grappling with this idea of how do we protect these trees, but also giving homeowners and developers the chance to come in and build and kind of shape the landscape to be how they want. Mm -hmm. But Atlanta does have an ordinance to protect the city's tree canopy. Does it work? Protect, we'll use that very loosely. And that's from the city, not me. Uh, I I talked with Tim Keene, and he says, so right now, depending on the acre size and depending on what you want to do, if you want to remove trees, you pay a fine. Um, Or you pay a fee, I should say. Where that money goes to staff the arborist, it could go to a number of places, but there's not a guarantee that more trees are being planted. So it it doesn't really protect them. If you have the money, you can cut down as many as you want. And that's what they want to change is we've got to put something in place where you can't just come in and remove them without a guarantee that, A, either you'll plant more or, hey, this tree is is old enough, it's still alive, you can't take this one down. So are efforts underway to rework Atlanta's tree ordinance to make sure that that remains intact? Yeah. uh, They've they've done a couple studies using uh, urban ecology framework, looking at the capacity of the city, uh, trees on on certain public areas. Um, One thing I found interesting was Keen pointed out we really got to take advantage of the street space. Uh, that means, you know, whether that's putting concrete barriers in the middle of the streets, building trees there, mm-hmm. um, developing more green space, putting more on sidewalks. Um, but people want the trees, which is why they move here. And But to stay here, it's kind of like, oh, we, we got to cut them down. Um, and you see the city really grappling with this idea of how do we encourage development but keep what makes us special. All right. So we do have a fact check. Papasil is the tree that you were talking about. P-A-P-A-S-I-L. Tall tree. It's not a timber tree. That's what we learned. So National Geographic has a special cities issue out this month. And we spoke with the publication's senior environment editor, Robert Kunzig, who told us Atlanta's tree canopy offers more advantages than just shade and beauty. Let's hear. That's a huge advantage in terms of cleaning the air, in terms of also of us absorbing the runoff from these intense storms that we're increasingly getting with climate change. Now, you can hear the full interview with David Kunzig at gpbnews.org. But Ross, he's saying trees can help an ecosystem recover after a storm, help clean the air, but storms also take trees down. So that's certainly always been the natural balance of thing. But with climate change, is that balance tipping? So another thing I found interesting in in, in this hike was there's a watershed uh, view to this. I think when we often we think of trees, yes, we think of the shade. I talked to residents out in the cater and they're like, it's a five degree difference when I'm walking my dog down the sidewalk in the summer. Uh, But you also have to look at it. Trees kind of play this natural barrier from water going into uh, the the, The storm drains. Yes, into the drains, the creeks. Um, And I went down by a creek and the erosion just from a few years ago was massive because of the lack of trees, more houses 
house is being built. So they do play this role. And, and I talk with uh, Jacqueline Echoes, who's with the watershed, and she points out the more trees you take down, that cost is then being put on taxpayers because now you have to clean up spills. Uh, there was a massive spill uh, in Fulton County. Uh, there are spills into the Flint River Creek, uh, or Flint River, excuse me. Um, so they kind of do have this double advantage of shade and breeze, but also preventing taxpayers from having to foot the bill of increasing or bettering the sewer system because they're kind of the natural system in that degree. One of the cells there. That's GPB reporter Ross Terrell. We're talking about his contribution to GPB's Wild Georgia series. Emily Jones, let's hear about your story. This is about something that lives in the ocean. All right, we couldn't resist. Emily, you are based on the Georgia coast, and you reported on shark eyesight. How do sharks see? Uh, Well, since we started with the Jaws music, I I would be remiss if I didn't note that sharks are not, you know, the sort of intentional monster killers uh, the way that the Great White is portrayed in that movie. That's that's kind of a myth. Um, But the truth is that, well, we do know that about their their kind of predatory behavior. It's not they don't attack humans the way that that shark does. There's actually a lot we don't know about what sharks can see, what they can't see. um, And that is why the researcher that I spoke to for this story is doing this work, studying all different kinds of sharks. Little tiny sharks, really big sharks, uh, you know, great whites, that kind of thing, to figure out what what they can see, how it works, and what we can learn from that. Well, anyone who has snorkeled or scuba dived knows that it can get pretty dark in the ocean. At certain depths, the sunlight doesn't penetrate. The ocean can be murky. So what is so special about sharks' eyeballs and what they can and can't see down there? Uh, well, it, I mean, it varies from from shark to shark, but one of the species of sharks that uh, this researcher I spoke to, Christine Bedore at Georgia Southern University, um, she was showing me one of the sharks that she has in her lab in these big giant tanks that she has. Um, actually, when it's daylight, uh, you know, like it was when I went and visited the lab, the lights are on. You can't even see, it. Does, it looks like the shark doesn't even have pupils in its eyes. Um, and it does. It's just that the sharks are so well adapted to that dark environment that they live in um, that, you know, the the pupil, the black part of your eye that that gets bigger when it's dark and, and constricts when it's bright out, constricts so much um, when it's light out for these sharks because they're used to this dark environment and their pupil is like super, super well adapted so it can catch all possible light and they can actually see apparently in the dark. Well, given that there is so little light, uh, they have a sort of sixth sense. How can they sense prey at long distances? Uh, Well, that actually bumps us up against another really common myth about sharks, um, which I was kind of surprised to learn there's really not much evidence for. And that's something I've certainly heard before. You probably have, too. Um, The idea that a shark can sense a drop of blood Uh in in a Olympic-sized swimming pool. So that was something that that Christine Bedore um, and I talked about. And she said, you know, there actually isn't really any evidence for that, evidence that sharks can um, can actually sense blood at that great distance or any more than anybody else can can sense blood. But they do have a sixth sense um, that's really important to her research. Uh, they can they can sense electric fields. Um, so, you know, fish are like swimming around in salt water and they're breathing it in and out. And all of that activity with the salt water creates ions, um, which which generates these electric fields around the fish. And the sharks can sense that. And that is is key for them in, in going after their prey. So this is really interesting to know about, but how about practical applications? Why does it matter that we know about how sharks perceive the world? 
yeah, well, there's sort of lots of different directions that can go in. But one I was really interested in um, is particularly interesting here on the Georgia coast where shrimping is a huge industry. Um, and that is that shrimpers have a big problem with sharks attacking their nets. You know, they they capture these nets and are dragging them along behind their boats. They're full of shrimp and all kinds of other uh, stuff known as bycatch that get caught up in those nets, too. So there's fish. There's a, It's like it's just like a net of shark food that they're dra- dragging behind them. Um, so the sharks are really into that and they attack the nets, which is a big problem. Um, it, you know creates these big holes in the nets and they're expensive. It's it's a whole mess. Um, so something that, that the researcher Bedore is working on is uh, trying to use that electric field sense that I described to make sort of deterrent devices that that say to the sharks, like, stay away. These nets are not full of food for you, you know, to try and try and cut down on that problem for Georgia shrimpers. So let's hear just a little bit. You got out on a boat with Bedore uh, to talk about this more. Bedour also does research on the Georgia Bulldog, a research shrimp boat at the UGA Marine Extension in Brunswick. Shrimper Catfish McLean is part of the crew. But yeah, so we'll be dropping the tri-net right now, and it acts just like our bigger nets. They bring in small nets called tri-nets. So that is you out on, we should have noted, the Georgia Bulldog <laughs> Shrimp yes. Research Boat. So what do you think listeners can learn from this series as a whole? From the series as a whole, I'd say just how much fascinating stuff is going on in Georgia. I mean, you know, here on the coast, I I get to learn all this really cool stuff about what shrimpers are up to and sharks and how they interact with each other. I mean, you know, for that, I'd say like folks in the rest of the state can learn how much incredible research and work is going on on the coast, you know, beyond just like the beaches they enjoy. Um, But also, I mean, I didn't just as as Ross was saying, you know, I didn't realize how big of a deal Atlanta's tree canopy was like that's definitely something I'll, I'll pay more attention to next time I'm up in Atlanta. And I think I think that's true for a lot of Georgians. I mean, we're kind of aware of of how much, you know, incredible research and just incredible nature there is out around us. But, uh, you know, it's it's really great to kind of shine a spotlight on that. I think it's a lot of stuff I personally didn't know about. Emily Jones and Savannah, thanks so much. Thank you. And Ross Terrell, thank you for being with us. Thank you. They are both contributing to the Wild Georgia series, which you can hear during Morning Edition and All Things Considered for a few more days. And the stories are all together at gpbnews.org. Okay, so last week we heard about the 47-year drive to get footage of Aretha Franklin recording her amazing Grace Gospel album out into the world. The film is now out in theaters. We asked for your thoughts on Aretha singing gospel. That record sold more copies than any of her pop or soul records. Amber responded that Pink Cadillac is her favorite Aretha song. So, so far, pop is winning on our Facebook group. If you want to put in a vote for gospel or any other Aretha tune, go to GPB Radio's On Second Thought Facebook group and post. Coming up, Corey Graves is determined to be our first, the first gay woman of color to win a director's Oscar. She's starting young to achieve that dream. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us with that and hear more stories with On Second Thought. 